Hey guys, it's Practical Psychology here, and after my video on how to tell if a girl likes you a lot, got a lot of great feedback, I decided to make a video on 10 psychological ways to get a girl to like you. First off, I want to say that these are ethical and aren't manipulative, but will, in the end, make a girl subconsciously be attracted to and want to be around you more. Tip number three, have great hygiene. Okay guys, number one tip to instantly make a girl attracted, smell good. I don't even mean smell amazing, you just have to smell decent. Go take a shower, rub body soap all over you. Twice. Now shampoo your hair, dry yourself off, apply good deodorant, put clean clothes on, and you're set. No need to douse yourself with half a gallon of Axe body spray, you just have to smell presentable. You can, though, buy some cologne and spray one squirt, two squirts max. I recommend one on the wrist and one near your neckline. This is all it takes to smell great, and girls fall for great smelling guys all the time. Tip number four, ask her to do things for you. So this is definitely a secret tip and maybe even a bit manipulative, but definitely not anything evil or negative. Just ask her to do something for you. There's a psychological effect called the Benjamin Franklin effect that goes like this. You ask a girl to do something for you, she does it, and in the end she subconsciously likes you just a bit more. You might be asking why though. Well, when we do stuff for people, our brain thinks since we're doing something for them, we must like them. Now, Benjamin Franklin used this techniques on his rivals and political opponents to get him to like him more. Also, there's something called the consistency bias. After someone has done something for you a couple of times, they're more likely to do more just because they don't want to look inconsistent. Tip. Ask for things like picking up a pencil, for notes in class, giving someone a paper, or even small errands. But don't overdo it, though, or she'll feel like you're using her. Guys, it's just that simple. Smell good. Girls fall for that all the, all the time, according to this video. Oh, we're in a series called The Vow. This is our second week, um, and our hope is to, to do a little better, maybe, than some of the advice that we see online some places. Uh, if those of you who are not married today ever hope to be, our, our hope is that we will give you some tools uh, to prepare you for a God-honoring and very fulfilling marriage. And if uh, you are already married, we hope to give you some uh, mid-course correction to help you strengthen the marriage that you already have to be a blessing for you, God, and also generations to come. So a little bit of fun. Uh, let me ask a question. How many of you have ever done anything kind of goofy, silly out there uh, uh, to make a fool of yourself in the name of love? You don't have to answer that, but just you think about your past experience. Anyone ever done anything kind of stupid or ridiculous? Uh, most of us have or, or one point or another. <clears throat> I would have loved. I'm going to violate most of the uh, sermon preparation material that you hear in seminaries, which is never make anything about personally about you, just kind of stick to the word and stuff, and I'm going to violate that as I routinely do, because I think, you know, uh, pastors are people too, and so we've got goofy stories as well. But anyway, uh, I want to tell you that Jackie and I met when we were in high school. Uh, I was a sophomore, and she was a freshman. I played trombone in the band, and she played clarinet. We were on opposite ends of the semicircle that was the band practice room. Uh, I will argue that I was pretty much an idiot in all things related to uh, females at that point. Uh, so I don't believe that we would have ever, ever, ever met, ever connected. But for some reason, she was mildly interested in me, and uh, neither of us understands this. I asked, uh, asked her, she declares now that it must have just been a God thing at the time. <laughs> I think it probably was, because I can think of no earthly reason why she would have had any interest in me. Uh, uh, I asked her about it again this week, and she said, I saw potential. <laughs> that, that is a woman's way of saying, yes, you are a total loser 
right now, but there's maybe something in there that I can work with or God can work with. So she yakked about me to her friend, Alice Werner, who, who did, as I discovered like 40 years later, what girls do, which is arrange an introduction in the way girls do to make it look like the guy had the idea to begin with. See, that's how they, they pull that off. So listen, this may not sound like a big deal, but my wife, Jackie, very shy, very introverted. This was a huge risk, right? In pursuit of love, right? Because who knew how things would turn out, right? I, I say this only to make the point that early on I was such a backward dolt in all this dating a girl thing that uh, my wife was a whole lot better, I think, at the whole idea of pursuing than I was. Now, by the time I got into college, uh, I figured some things out. And I started some, doing some goofy things in pursuit of, of her. Uh, one I'll mention was that I attended Indiana State University at Terre Haute, Indiana, which is on the Wabash River on the western side of Indiana, uh, up, nestled up against the Wabash River. She went to school at DePaul University, about 35 miles north in Greencastle, Indiana, also nestled up against the Wabash River, due, due west of Indianapolis on the Indiana-Illinois in, in border. And on weekends when I could get away, I would... Uh, drive on Friday nights over to Greencastle and my VW Bug that I discovered later had two functioning cylinders out of four in that engine. Uh, anyway, we would uh, hang out in the, in the dorm or whatever until 11 o'clock. That was when curfew was. Then I would go down to the VW Bug and sleep in the back seat, which if you know anything about VW Bugs, means that you're going to be in the fetal position. But there's an interesting factor you probably don't know if you didn't grow up in the Midwest. Uh, Greencastle and Indianapolis, geographically, they are just inside the southern element of the Arctic Circle. That's, that, I'm serious, you didn't know that? You, you now know it, right? You can pass it on your geography tests. So you'd freeze in the back seat. But it was worth it because there were guys in that school that she went to that were just sketchy. And I didn't want any of them looking like they would make a better option. So I was willing to freeze in the backseat of the car. So all that said, here's our big principle for this week in the Vow series. We pursue what we don't have that we want. Chances are pretty good that most of you have some kind of a similar story. I don't know what it is. Maybe you drove overnight through the snowstorm, risking your life to spend just 20 minutes with her. Maybe you spent your whole savings account to get tickets to that ridiculous concert because it was her favorite band, right? Maybe you used to sit on the phone for hours and hours talking and you're, you know, you're trying to get the other one to hang up first, right? We've all got those kind of stories. We tend to pursue that which we do not have, but there's an actually very important corollary to that principle, and it's this. We tend not to pursue what we do have. We tend not to pursue that which we already have. So see, what has happened in a relationship when years later you wake up and you just don't feel it anymore, right? You don't feel the love. What happens when you wake up one day and think, where, where did the romance go? Where did the adventure go? Where did the intimacy go? Well, it's actually... Very simple. If you dig into the root of it all, somewhere along the path, somewhere along the way, priorities got out of line, and we talked about all that last week, and the pursuit of one another stopped. Think about it this way. Is there any other area in your life 
that you can just be lazy and not do anything and see dramatic improvement, right? Think about, uh, can you be lazy and taking care of your body and not ever go to the gym and somehow just magically end up in fantastic shape? The answer is no, you can't. (laughs) If you run a business, can you just ignore your business? Just, uh, you know, let it run on its own? Never manage it, never lead it, never take care of the finances and somehow grow your business? No, you cannot. Can you be lazy with regard to your lawn or your yard? Not water it, not fertilize it, not take care of it, and somehow magically see it flourish? No, you cannot. You do that, weeds are going to take over or, or dirt will take over. That's how it's going to work. So that's why, this, this, that's why good advice is this with regard to marriage. If the grass begins to look greener across the fence, you need to start taking care of your own lawn. You need to water it, fertilize it. And that ties into our message today. In this series, we're talking about four different vows. And if we live by them, it's going to equip us and help us move forward towards a marriage that honors God and makes for great husbands and wives. Again, if you were with us last week, we talked about vow number one. We're going to promise to make God our number one priority and our spouse as our number two, our second priority. God's number one, and that relationship's going to be preeminent. And the relationship with God is going to then spill over into, cascade down into the relationship with the spouse. The second vow of this week is the vow of pursuit. I promise to always pursue my number two. So God's going to be number one. You're always going to pursue him, right? But your spouse is number two. And you're going to commit to always pursuing that number two. We took our first vow out of Genesis chapter 2.24. And we'll take the second vow out of the same verse. Here's what that scripture says. That is why a man leaves a father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. A man leaves his father and mother. He reprioritizes his relationships before spouse comes along. Mom and dad are probably number one in that relationship issue. Spouse becomes number one in terms of human relationships. God's still number one, but the spouse takes over from mom and dad as number two. He says he is united with her. That root word in Hebrew translated united is uh, very interesting. The word is debak, and it literally means to cling or adhere. Uh, So I got a clingy cat to sort of help us get into this, get your mind adjusted into this. But the the Hebrew word is a lot richer than just just clinging or adhering, Um, right? The Hebrew language is kind of an amazing language. You get words that actually are kind of word pictures and kind of describe lots of action. Uh, And so the same with this word. It's got some meaning that's a little deeper than just what you see with one word, right? Uh, It literally means to catch by way of pursuit, or to pursue hard with affection and devotion. In fact, I want to show you three different verses in the Old Testament that use this particular word and show you how, they're translate, how they translate that word. In the Today Living Bible, in Psalm 63, it translates the word this way. I follow closely behind you. Now, that's also a favorite verse for stalkers, but that's for another message and another time, right? Job 41 uses the same word, debak, but it translates it as joined fast. They are joined fast to one another, it says. And then, just in case we miss it, this verse also kind of contains a description or a definition of what joined fast means. It goes on to say this, they cling together and cannot be parted. 
And finally, Judges 20 translates this word as a determined pursuit. It says they pursued hard after them. One of my favorite uh, stories in scripture about relationships is actually a very beautiful story of pursuit. It's in the Old Testament, and it's about Jacob and his love for Rachel. So here's, there's Abraham, right? And then there's his son, Isaac. And Isaac's, one of Isaac's sons was Jacob. So that's kind of the, the genealogy behind this. Jacob was the fellow that ultimately God begins to call Israel. And he's the one who had the sons that ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. So the story's a little bit like a romantic comedy. It's got some really good humor in there. But here's kind of what happens. There's two sisters. There was Leah, the older sister, and Rachel, the younger. And the Bible has a quick description of those two sisters. It says that Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Leah, what to say about her? She had weak eyes. <laughs> Moral equivalent of, well, she must have a nice personality. That's what it says in English. But I'm going to take a little detour here with you just for a second. Because if you track the Hebrew word that's translated weak, weak eyes, in Scripture, it's very interesting. It's translated elsewhere as delicate or tender or gentle. Is it possible that in contrast to Rachel's outward gorgeousness, supermodel-esqueness, right? He was so wowed by Rachel's beauty that he didn't spot maybe who was actually wowing God a little bit more. Maybe God who looks at the heart had a soft spot for Leah. After all, she ends up having three times the number of children that Rachel has. And, interestingly, it was her son, Judah, who becomes the line through which the Messiah shows up. Maybe God just wanted Jesus to inherit Leah's gentle, tender, delicate eyes. Anyway, enough of that. I'm just going to give a shout out to Leah because I think there's more to the story than that. Anyway, back to our love story, Jacob and Rachel. So Jacob ends up loving the youngest one, Rachel. And he wanted her as his wife. So he goes and talks to her dad and sort of says, I'll do whatever it takes to be able to get her as my wife. And Laban says, okay, uh, here's what you got to do. Work for me for seven years. And she's yours. And the imagery is just really great. He worked seven years. And the scripture says that the time passed so quickly that it was, like, it was like a minute because he was so in love with her. So after seven years, they have the big wedding. And uh, we find out that Laban pulls a switcheroo. At the wedding, apparently brides are veiled. After the wedding, it's dark. But Laban ends up giving Jacob the one with the weak eyes. Or the one with the tender, delicate, gentle eyes, depending on how you want to play that. Not the one with the gorgeous figure. I suppose the wedding ended after sundown because Jacob doesn't discover until the next morning that he's been duped. Apparently in total darkness, everybody looks good. Anyway, come morning, Jacob is totally upset, which no doubt makes Leah feel really good about herself. Kind of really feel for her in this story. Jacob goes and complains about this to Laban, which explains, who explains that in their culture, it's only right that you marry the older daughter first. And I'm thinking, Jacob's probably thinking, okay, you, you did have seven years to tell me this. You could have clued me in like year one, year two, year, I mean, you could have told me before the day after the wedding. 
Anyway, we're, I remember being told in Sunday school class as a kid that, uh, that he had to work seven more years to get Rachel. But if you read scripture, it doesn't say that. It says, Laban says, okay, uh, here's what we're going to do. You stay with Leah for one week. And then I'm going to give you Rachel. And he's true to his word. One week goes by and Rachel becomes his wife as well. He then works seven more years for Laban. Okay, so get the picture. Jacob worked for Rachel seven more years after he already had her because of his love for her. And I think this is the heart of what God is talking about in terms of pursuit in our marriages. He wants us to continue to work to pursue our number twos after we already have them. So reflect. When you're not married and you find that special person that you think can stomach you and all that, you begin to pursue that person. You pursue her, you pursue him. You pursue each other. You're thinking of each other all the time. I brought some of my favorite things. Again, I'm going to... Basically, this is, an, this is an honoring of my wife sermon, basically, because I was a, such a doofus. Favorite things. Here's a jar that sits on my desk. It's a jar of decoupage clippings from newspapers and such that Jackie did for me that uh, I basically got Charlie Brown's in here, which is our little favorite restaurant over in Greencastle. She th- says things like, you are out to change the world. Love, DePaul. And in, I mean, basically, I put this on my desk. I put pins and pencils in it, but I look at this and it just brings back so many cool memories of my wife, not at the time, but my love of my life pursuing me, okay? Then I got this in here. This is kind of cool. She made this for me. Let me see this. King and queen chess pieces. She decided for me, she would cut out a piece of plywood stain it with a chessboard, lacquer it all up, do all the pieces, and then she made these and then fired them up in the kiln, glazed them, and handed them to me. This sets outside my office as well. And then for one Valentine's Day, one of my prized possessions, she made this. Embroidered I love you on it. This sets right inside the door of my office. So when I leave the office every day, I see this. See, folks, that's, that's pursuit. And what happens if you don't pursue your spouse once you're married is that things tend to go downhill. Now, if I talk to you, those of you who are not yet married, I'll just give you a little advice. If you happen to be dating someone right now and there's not mutual pursuit at some point, it's a real warning sign. Because we tend to work for, we tend to pursue that which we don't have. So ladies, if he's not doing anything that looks like a date, if he's not cleaning up and dressing up and dropping some change on you, if he's not ever doing something special for you, you need to realize you are worth pursuing. You are. And hopefully you're not throwing yourself at him, but if you're not writing him little love notes or something goofy at the same time, if you're not making him cookies, and maybe cookies aren't your thing, but you know, if you're not doing something to show some interest in, in the other person, you really want to look at whether this is a person that you're really pursuing. Because the other person should be worth pursuing. Because here's what happens. When you get married, the effort of pursuit typically does not go up. It typically goes down. And this is especially true if you're not seeing it all that much in the dating area. 
So you might need to reevaluate. So let's talk about how we actually live this thing out, this thing called pursuit. Let's be real practical. Because no one, almost no one, I don't think of, I don't think any, I think it's no one gets married and thinks, you know what? I just want to have a, I really want to have a bad marriage. I want this thing to last about seven years. And then I would just want to divvy everything up and see the kids every other weekend. Nobody thinks that. So we've all got good intentions. We start off loving each other. But you know, life wears you down. You get tired, you get worn out. Maybe you get overwhelmed. You kind of want to show the love that you feel, but you just kind of never get around to it. So I want to talk to you about three simple principles about closing the gap between the intentions you might have and actions that you need to do. Three simple, I think, scripturally-based principles that are going to help us pursue our number two. First principle is this. Think something good about your spouse. Think something good about your spouse. But don't stop there. Say it. Think something good and say it. Give life to that positive thought and say it. The writer of Hebrews said it this way. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If you want to get, keep sin's deceitfulness out of your marriage, one of the ways to do it is to encourage each other daily. Purpose to think of something good and then say it. You never want your wife, never want your husband to be starved for that verbal affection. A couple of pieces of advice. Let me just talk to the guys. Uh, you need to pursue her with words of affection. And what I want to encourage you to do is to, to pursue her with non-sexual affection. And most of you guys are going, I don't even think there is such a thing as non-sexual affection. Yes, pursue her with non-sexual affection. Now, here's what that means. It means non-sexual affection. It means affection that's not intended to lead to sex. You, you don't think you can do this, but you can you can talk to her like a human being and not just a person that you want to have sex with. You can tell her that you love her. You can maybe add in why it is that you love her. You know, you're my best friend. You're a great mom. You're doing this. You, I trust you completely. You always got my back. You hung in there with me during the tough times. You can think of something to say on a positive way. Pursue her that way. Think of something good and say it, right? And uh, ladies, I would say this to you. Pursue your guy with words of affirmation, because like Jackie, I saw potential. A guy can become the person that you see him as. Build up the potential, affirm. You can do better than what's on the screen, right? Sometimes Jackie will tell me, hey, that was a good message or whatever. Can I just tell you when she does, it does not matter what any of you say. If she thinks I brought something positive, if she thinks I did something good, you guys can say whatever you want. Doesn't matter. My wife thinks I did good. Right? If you know me, you know this. I'm a, I'm, I will confess it again. I'm not a home improvement guy. I'm the guy home improvement guys make fun of. <laughs> Even then, you ladies can encourage. Um, we had a recent thing that happened in our house. We've got recessed lighting on our front porch. And uh, suddenly they stopped working. I did everything I could put new bulbs in them, did everything, and nothing, nothing seemed to work. Um, I just figured, okay, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to save up money. We're going to get electricians out here. We're going to get contractors out here. We're going to tear the whole house down 
and rebuild it to fix this, this thing. So that, that five years went by, okay? I don't know why, but after an elder meeting last, late last month, I got this stupid idea that I should go out there and try to see if I could finagle around with that, those lights again. And so I got, went out to the garage and I got all the light bulbs I could find and I just started putting, taking turns putting them in one of the switches. I put four or five in there and all of a sudden I put one in and the, the thing came on. I said, well, what kind of light is this? And I found four other, three other lights like that and uh, played around with all of them and all of a sudden all four of those lights magically were then working after, after five years, right? It was now about 11.30 on that Monday night after the elder meeting. Let me tell you what Jackie did not say that would have been totally accurate. She didn't say this. Man, how stupid do you have to be to have not been able to fix this five years ago? Now, here's what she said. I like it that you went back out there and tried to do that for me. Right? And and then then she did something magical. By this time, it's about 12 o'clock. She says, turn them all on. Turn them all on. I'm going to get my shoes. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go stand in the street. And I'm going to look at this from afar to see how it looks. So I follow her out to the street. And she just, she just awed and ooed about the lights. This is really important. Just want to encourage you ladies. Try not to tell your guy what, he, what he's not. Because from a spouse, that just kills a guy. When you say you're not, you're not, you're not, this, this, this. He just wants to take his ball and go home and not play anymore. So even if he's not quite there, you can affirm, you can build him up and he'll come a lot closer to growing into the man you hope he'll become. This is especially true, I think, spiritually. One of the most common complaints that pastors get from from women, from wives, is, well, my husband's not the spiritual leader. Can I just tell you? If your husband ever hears you say that, you've done absolutely nothing to want to make him ever attempt to be your spiritual leader. You just flashed him the loser sign. You just signaled that you don't look up to him in this area. Can I tell you a better approach? Take whatever he does that's even remotely spiritual and applaud that guy for it. Like if he says, hey, let's go to church today. First time in three months or whatever. At the church, you tell him, you know, when you suggested that we go to church, that just made me feel so close to you. You do that, and he's going to want to go to church again. He might suggest it more often. He may never have prayed before, but all of a sudden it's Thanksgiving. And you... Is that irritating you as much as was irritating me? By the way, it's apparently 12 o'clock midnight. Yeah. So, it's Thanksgiving. He doesn't pray, but you say, you encourage him to say a little prayer. And his prayer is this. God is great. God is good. And we thank him for this FUD. Because it should rhyme, right? It should should rhyme, but I don't know who wrote that. You go up to him afterwards. And you just tell him, hey, when you prayed, that was awesome. And maybe you breathe heavy in his ears. I don't know what you should do, but, you know, encourage the guy. Maybe next time he'll, he'll say, I want to I do that again. I want to pray louder and longer. I don't know. 
Build him up with words of affirmation because the way you see him becoming is what you will encourage him to become. And as I say, be like Jackie. See the potential in the loser and work to coax it to the surface. Whenever there's a confident person, almost every time there's someone who's been affirming to that, that knucklehead. So when you think of something good, say it. Spend more time thinking something good. The second thought is this. When you think of something special to do, do it. James 4, 17 says something interesting, and I think it can apply to marriage, and if it does, pretty convicting. It says, if anyone then knows the good thing they ought to do and does not do it, it is sin for them. Right? Anytime you know there's something good that you should do for your spouse to be a blessing, you need to do it. Tons of ways to do this. You come home early one day from work, grab some takeout, take her out to the park because it's a beautiful day. It's not going to be a beautiful day in D.C. in August and July. You're just going to cause her to have, you know, heat, heat stroke. But, you know, if you live in some other part of the country, buy tickets to the game. Take her there. Guys, if you've got babies at home, seems like it's a romantic thing to give the dirty kids a bath. Help them get to bed. Read them a story. Wash them up. Load the dishes. Unload the dishwasher. Help pick up the house, vacuum, run a load of wash, send her flowers. If you can't afford to send flowers, pick some from your neighbor's yard or whatever. But, you know, the point is, and if, you can, if you can give them flowers where other women will see it, that, that multiplies the points. When you think of something good, think of, think of ways to do it. Make it happen. Bless them with it. Be creative. Fill their car with gas. Write little sticky notes. Watch a chick flick instead of a shoot 'em up Yeah, I told you I surprised Jackie with tickets on a Saturday, Friday morning to go see Mamma Mia. Okay, a couple weeks ago. Join them in their interests. Go shopping with them, even if you hate shopping. It's amazing how much conversation you can have while you're trolling through the mall. Um, one of the things that Jackie and I have fallen into, I go with her to most of her doctor's appointments. I drop her off at the door, then I go digging around for a parking space so she doesn't have to. And I usually go back into the room with the doctor with her on many of her appointments. Not the pap smear, okay, but the others, right? You know what she just told me last week? She says, I really like it when you come with me to those things. I feel that your being there gives me credibility with the doctor when I'm telling him what's going on. And I think she feels that way mostly with the male doctors. So see, if you think of something special, do it. And whenever you think something amazing, say it. And then number three, when you want something different, be it. We kind of meddle a little bit because some people can respond to this message this way. They're thinking about their spouse. They're thinking about all the spouses, how the spouse should do this and the spouse should do that. And it would be great if the spouse heard this message and became a better person. Uh, And you're kind of pointing the finger at the other person. If that's where you are, you're getting the total wrong message from this series. Don't gripe about what your spouse isn't. You fixate on becoming the person God wants you to be. If you, want, if you want something different, then be something different. If you want something different, be it. If you want to be pursued, but he or she isn't doing it, fine. You be the pursuer. Do you think of good things to say and say them? Do you think of good things to do and do them? You encourage. Not talking about complaining here, but encouraging. You build up. You highlight the positives. You highlight the potential. You be his or her greatest champion. Let me tell you this. You will not 
you will not. You will not criticize your way to a better marriage. You will not criticize your way into a better marriage. You are the first and foremost responsibility for you. You be the change you want to see. And the moment you go home and try to apply this message to your spouse, you've missed the entire point. You want something different? You become something different. So remember, your vow for the weeks, pursue your number two. I mean, there was a time, right? If you're married, when you did that? I mean, you were in love and you did stupid, goofy things for love? Why? Because you wanted what you didn't have. I mean, you were crazy about this guy, this gal. And when you later find out that you're not anymore, somewhere along the way you stop pursuing. Get back to pursuing. See, these principles are kind of true. To get what you didn't have at one point, you did what you had never done. If you had something special, it's because you did something special to get it. And to get what you once had, you need to get back to doing what you used to do. You had it before, you can get it back. You know what to do, you know how to do it, because you did it already. Reach out and show some romance, some tenderness, some affection, some words of affection, words of affirmation. You pursue the person like you once did. And with consistency and over time, don't be surprised if the heart softens. Don't be surprised if the romance comes back. Suddenly, you seem like you're more fun to be around. Suddenly, instead of being in different rooms, maybe you're sitting on the same couch. Maybe instead of sitting on separate sides of the same couch, you're holding hands, you know, like you used to. Do what you once did. If it was ever special, it can be special again. So, God's your number one. God's your number two. Remember to always pursue the number two. Very interesting verse in Revelations. Jesus is talking to a church at Ephesus that was madly in love with God. In fact, it was so madly in love with God that it, it changed the entire economy and politics of a whole region. But something happened, and they sort of lost that first love. Here's what Jesus tells them. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do. Do what? The things you did at the first. He's telling them, look, you know how to pursue God. You know how to, how to kindle that relationship with God because you already did it once. Don't waste this gift that God has given you, either at the church or your relationship with him or with your spouse. Get back into doing what you used to do. Fall in love all over again. See, if the grass looks greener someplace else, put some fertilizer down, put some effort in, water your own yard, mow that grass, and you can have the marriage that God intended. Let's pray.